just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. Who are Kenyatta and Jack? We're just friends who are Gen Xers, former Air Force brats, parents, taxpayers, and citizens of the Earth. And we're here to save it one podcast at a time. Hello, beloved listening friends. Welcome. We are glad you're here. You have tuned in to yet another mystical, magical, Twilight Zone, Outer Limits-ish episode of Kenyatta and Jack, Save the World. There's a lot going on. We're tired. But first, let me remind everybody who we are. I, as always, am Kenyatta. And... 1,200 miles to the west of me is the John Oates to my Daryl Hall, Jack. Oh, I'll, I'll take being John Oates. That, that man can play the guitar pretty good. Pretty, he can. Pretty darn good. And the only reason I claim Daryl Hall is because he and I share the same birthday. So. That's just natural. Just natural. It has to be. Yeah. I would like to kick in here with a, a cute little um, mini story. Because everyone okay. always has many stories about their kids when their kids were younger. Mm-hmm. So right. one day I was on the YouTube and you know how you can easily go down a rabbit hole on YouTube. Yes. So I was, I don't know what I was looking at at first, but I was looking at old music videos, you know, when they still made music videos on the regular soon came across the Hall and Oates selection. So my daughter comes wandering in the room. She's looking at, you know, what is that? I said, that's Hall and Oates. I said, they're iconic, 80s. I said, I said, look at this video right here in this song. This was classic 80s. She looks at the video for a second. She says, what, foggy? I said, get out. <laughs> I told her to get out of my room. All right, don't make me get violent. <laughs> I said, it's dry eyes, get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a couple of years ago, Heather and I saw Hall Notes in concert. Oh, um, nice. we had some friends and they had won some tickets at a Singo, you know, which is it's bingo, but with songs and you got to identify the songs and they had won some tickets to Hall and Oates. Excuse me. This is a thing. Yeah. Yeah. Go to a bar. Yeah. Go look up Singo and you can Singo in your area and you can find them. It's bingo, but with songs. So the I mean, guy will play like 10 seconds of the song and then you hit your, th- you know, it has them on there. And... Oh, I'm there. I yeah. need to. I need to find some place to do that immediately. Immediately. They had won these tickets, and I don't remember the reason why, but they couldn't go. And they put a thing out at like 4.15. Anyone want these Hall & Oates tickets? And I just happened to see it right as they posted it. And I said, hey, do you want to get some free tickets to Hall & Oates tonight? And Heather was like, yeah. So Mm. I said, we'll take it. And then we texted back and forth, and we met him and picked up the tickets and went to the concert. And Train opened up for them. Oh, wow. Ooh. It's so, um, it was kind of cool. Train went and performed. They were really, really, really good. Train was really good live. And then Hall and Oates came on. And then uh, Pat Moynihan from Train came out. And they did a couple Train songs with Hall and Oates. And then he did a couple of Hall and Oates songs with them. Which mm. was really sort of different than how a lot of concerts are. Usually the opening act, once they're done, they're done. So I thought it was really cool. And... I have to say, I was very impressed with Hall & Oates. They sounded fantastic. I love to see 
and what we what we used to listen to is considered old school. I love to see the old school still, you know, being coming out and giving worthwhile performances. I love to see it. Oh, yeah, they definitely did. I'm I'm glad that I went. It's the best free concert I've ever been to. Well, nice. No, maybe not. No, Nirvana was the best free concert I've ever been to. Oh, okay. Mm. I got to see Nirvana a couple months before Kurt Cobain, you know, did pass. the thing. <laughs> yeah. We'll say past. Okay. Yeah, 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 for sure. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's another mini story because I would I still live there in, um, in Oklahoma. And the job I used to, uh, um, I still worked at the photo processing plant. I may have mentioned this before. It was the parent company of Glamour Shots. Yep. Um, and so I worked in the shipping department and there is a kid and I say kid because he was 18, 19, maybe. And he was the most hardcore Nirvana fan I had seen. I haven't seen one like that since. And he went to go see, well, when Kurt Cobain passed, the poor thing was depressed for like a week. Right. Like he was the most talkative, chatty thing, but we couldn't get him to say more than a half a dozen words for the better part of a week. He was heartbroken. And then what what was the band that had Eddie Vedder? Pearl Jam. Okay. So Pearl Jam comes to OKC. And this kid's name was Eddie, too. So him and his girlfriend go see Pearl Jam that weekend. He comes to work the next Monday. And I says, well, how was the show? He said, oh, my God. We got right, right next to the stage. Like his eyes were like, you know, wide and, <laughs> yeah. and, and glistening. Like he was fanboying. He said. We got up right next to the stage and I reached my hand up and Eddie Vedder touched my hand. He looks, he stares at me again, like even harder if that's possible. I touched Eddie. I said, so you touched yourself? He didn't get the joke at first. (laughs) (laughs) He said, oh no, no, you know what I mean. I'm like, yeah, okay. (laughs) So like everybody that came through our department that day, I would point at him and say, guys, he touched Eddie. And they were like, He's Eddie. I'm like, exactly. Right. And yeah, they were like, yeah. and they would just walk away <laughs> shaking their heads like these people in the shipping department are stupid. They, yeah. They've absorbed were. too many fumes from the delivery truck. <laughs> yeah, we uh, we did. We did. Cause literally the 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 pull up docking door was right there. So yeah. yeah. It was all that CO2. It had to be. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely. It had to be. <laughs> I have to correct myself though. Oh. By all means, we have to issue a correction. From last week, in my opening, I said I'll feed her saying, and I I know I don't have the proper accent. I'm sorry. That's actually incorrect because that means see you later. You don't say that in an intro. What I should have said was guten tag. Right, right, yeah. Guten tag, listening friends. (laughs) That was, and you know, German is not your first nor second language. It could have been my second language had I stuck with it, but right. know, I didn't. So, <laughs> right. I only took well, those three years in high school and that was it. Right, right. Well, I was just assuming sarcasm was your second language, much like it's my oh. second language. Oh, well, of course. Fle- you, sarcasm can really be applied to anything, really. It's just like a language seasoner, like seasonal. That's so, that's true. Yeah, you can sprinkle that on German, Italian. I don't think you could have, I do not think there's the concept of sarcasm in Russian, though. If there was a language that did not have sarcasm, it would be Russian. It Could it be that 
Russia doesn't collectively have one of those kinds of sense of humor? I, I would say, yeah. <laughs> okay, okay. Oddly enough, and you can take this any way you want to, I've always liked the Russian accent. They were just, just a measure of, of right. m- m- melodic flow that it has. Yeah, that's true. This is not me endorsing anything that's going on right now. You can like an accent and not like the what a country's doing to another country. So Yes. Yeah. And I especially liked the Russian accent that Vigo Mortensen had in um uh, he plays a double agent. Oh my goodness. Uh, the 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 name of the movie will come to me much later on. I'll just blur it out. But he he play, I think he plays like a Russian national. He's like a double agent spying on yeah. Russia and the states, you know, in there. He's 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 embedded with the Russian mafia and it's really, really cool. He has a very top-notch Russian accent. I just thought I'd throw that out there. So well, yeah. Knowing Vigo oh, Martinson, oh. you probably did something crazy to pick it up. Yeah, I hear he's very intense in um when it comes to preparing for his roles. So I'm going to figure this out. Eastern Promises. Okay, yeah, because we don't want our listeners to not be able to go and look this up. Especially as much pop culture as we just randomly drop for no reason whatsoever. Yeah. Right, Mm -hmm. yeah, exactly, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. Well, I think we should uh, move on into our our WTFs, if you're good with that. I are. All righty. I'm not sure which one of us goes first. Not that it matters. I mean, that would be you. Okay. All right. Well, um, I am going to go with uh, my WTF is science related. Mm -hmm. And um, astronomers have picked up a mysterious cosmic heartbeat is what they're calling it from billions of light years away. It is not even in our galaxy. And it is something that is called, uh, in astronomy, there's something called a fast radio burst. It's like a burst of like a radio, you know, on the radio spectrum. And it usually lasts maybe a tenth of a second. And they pick them up because they're just so incredibly powerful. And uh, this new one that they've discovered is repeating and it's a thousand times, it lasts a thousand times longer, which is funny because that's like three seconds. <laughs> <laughs> but um, so they, they think, they have thought that a, that the um, fast radio burst was coming from a neutron star. And they believe that because of this new discovery that they have found that that's probably what it is. And because it's repeating, they were able to put some, uh, you know, study and re- send radio telescopes towards it, point them towards it, and all of that stuff. And they're they're hoping that it can be used as what they're calling an astrophysical clock uh, to sort of help with distances, measure you know amazing, incredible distances, and all of that. And it's just really cool. Uh, the first fast radio burst was discovered in two thousand and seven, so they're. And I just think it's cool that they have found a new one that is going to help, you know, answer some some questions and probably raise new new questions <laughs> because now there's stuff we didn't know we needed to ask. So that's pretty cool. And that is my WTF. I dig that. 
and, and anytime we anytime you speak of sciencey things, it always reminds me how in the big scheme of it all, we are but specks. Yep. That is true. And it makes the way we as humans sometimes wholesale treat people even worse. <laughs> yes, it puts things in a very it puts things in perspective. I'll, I'll say that. I'll yeah. say it gently today. Yeah. So, and hmm. you know, that's short. Uh, if you want to go look it up, there's a pretty good article on space.com about it. Uh, the article is entitled Mysterious Cosmic Heartbeat Detected Billions of Light Years from Earth. If you want to go to space.com and look it up. Nice. Nice. So, yeah. And now I'm going to. I'm going to hit the tennis ball back over to you and let you, uh, I guess, hit it back with your WTF. <laughs> I would do that. I would do that. And this is a, a meme that I saw floating around social media here lately. I had to see if it was true. And apparently it is because I, I didn't quite believe it. Right. Apparently. And this is from an article dated March 16th, um, 2022, just this year, a few months ago which reports that about 130 million adults in the U.S. have low literacy skills, according to a Gallup analysis of data from the U.S. Department of Education. This means more than half of Americans between the ages of 16 and 74, read that 54%, read below the equivalent of a sixth grade level. Which is <sighs> sad. But after I read this article... And they gave a little bit, they, they added some clarity, which didn't make me necessarily feel that much better. But yeah, you you tell me. Okay. The, the article goes on to state that, quote, literacy is broadly defined as the ability to read and write, but it more accurately encompasses the comprehension, evaluation and utilization of information, which is why people describe many different types of literacy, such as health, financial, legal, et cetera. Right. Low literacy, low literacy skills can profoundly affect the day-to-day -day success of adults in the real world, and these impacts extend to their families as well. So they provide a nice little map. I like articles that have visuals, and they're showing different levels. And what they say in the article is nationally, one in five or over 20% have a literacy proficiency at or below level one. Now, according to the article, level one is tasks that require the respondent to read relatively short digital or print, continuous, non-continuous or mixed text to locate specific information, pretty much like simple reading and comprehension. I say that mm -hmm. they, I think they define level one reading. As. Right, right. So apparently... I said roughly 20%, a little over 20% have proficiency at or below. Even that number is bothersome to it me. Is. And it used to be, and I had the same idea, you know, years ago when it came to, when somebody, when somebody was called illiterate, I literally meant that meant they couldn't read at all. That's not what it means. They just mm -hmm. have varying degrees of what they can comprehend and understand, which makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. But looking at this happy map that this article contains, it's kind of sad that the states that look like they have 
the highest levels of folks at or below the level the level one literacy, mm-hmm. California, Texas, looks like is that Mississippi mm-hmm. and is that Nevada? I think that's Nevada. So it's kind of surprising. Some some ways surprising, some ways not when you think about the populations of those states. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Here we go. They actually have a little table. California, Arizona, New Mexico, Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, and Florida that have the lowest adult literacy spans. So it's disconcerting. Yeah. I'm I'm curious what that number would have been, say, in 2000 and then, say, in 1980. That was a good question. I mean, obviously... You're not going to be able to just sort of probably look that up and get numbers, you know, right now. But perhaps we can do a update in a future episode. That would be worth looking into. It really would be because it's, and I'm not, I'm not, and I, I don't, I, I, I guess in the wrong hands, these kind of statistics could be made into something political. I have no doubt someone sat down and said, "Well, you know, right, California, it's those damn communist liberals." Those dirty hippies, but there's some such mess, you know, somebody's going to make something political out of it, but there's a lot more to obviously a lot more to what feeds into a community's literacy levels. So, because yeah. well, I mean, kids don't really know cursive anymore either. And yeah, why, why would you? Because it's a, you know, computer based society and you don't have cursive letters with computers. No. So and most I, of the time you don't even have to write things down, honestly. Right. So there's almost cursive is probably a dying form of, you know, reading and writing sort of literacy. Mm-hmm. And it, it's not like some sort of big plot or anything like that. It's just when everything is computer based and you're reading it on the Internet, it's all in, you know, regular print. You don't need yeah. cursive, which makes me very upset at all of the cursive we had to do in elementary school. My God. And I was one of those uptight kind of kids. So I would be the one clutching the pencil, pushing hard down on the little the little paper with the dash guides on there. Just right. <laughs> that, uh, that uppercase D and I'm just sweating. It's like, is it perfect? Is it perfect? Yeah. Naturally, I didn't know any better at that point. But yeah, I'm thinking about there was like drills upon drills upon drills. No one was ever. And I probably, if I research, I will probably find the answer. I just never bothered. But no one has ever plainly explained to me why cursive N has two humps. And why cursive M has three. Yeah, it's just the way. I don't know. See? <sighs> Those damn communists. <laughs> <laughs> teaching teaching our kids Arabic numbers. Those <laughs> jerk-offs. <laughs> the indoctrination is is in full effect. Oh, <sighs> save, the, save the children. <laughs> That's right. Save the children. Save the world, I guess. Was it save the cheerleader, save the world? Yeah, yeah, there we go. <laughs> cheerleader, yep, that's right. Too, ba- who, too bad we don't have some of them folks around. Right, exactly. But nowadays, exactly. they'd probably be easily corruptible. So. Yeah, yep. Yeah, never mind. Yeah. Scratch that. All right. <laughs> well, you ready to uh, to jump into today's topic? I are. I'm ready to hear all about it. 
Yes, indeedy. All righty. Well, um, I'll, I guess I'll sort of go and as normal. If you have a question or something, you know, wave at me and I'll see if I can answer it or, if, you know, something you need to say. So today we're talking about something that honestly, to know how we got to where we are, we have to start way back at the starting point. Mm -hmm. And that is the abolitionist movement, which primarily going to focus on here in the U.S., but as we have discussed in the past when we talked about uh, William Wilberforce, uh, there was a, a similar movement in uh, England and the United Kingdom, which did tie into uh, the U.S. abolitionist movement. And, of course, mm -hmm. we all know that it took a civil war. <laughs> yeah, that's But... Mm -hmm. The shadow of all of that still looms large on American culture and society. And uh, we just sort of felt that maybe we needed to kind of look at that to sort of help determine how we got to where we were. So that's what we're going to do. But to do that, I have to, uh, I did sort of need to start with uh, this statement that I did read, and I'm not in any way, shape or form making it any worse, but it. The practice of slavery is one of humankind's most deeply rooted institutions. Anthropologists have found evidence of it in nearly every continent and culture dating back to ancient times and even the Neolithic period of human development. And the Neolithic period, I believe, is 10,000 years and, you know, further back. So We shall take your word for it. Yes. Yeah. So that <laughs> is, it is something that, you know, is a part of human history. And when you look at I mean, it's in the Bible, obviously. So that was, you know, during that time and older and Mesopotamia and all of that and everywhere, like it said. That being said, I'm going to move into sort of more of the, to talk about the abolitionist movement, I have to talk about how slavery came to mm -hmm. yes. the Western Hemisphere. Yes. So in 1472, the Portuguese negotiated the first slave trade agreement that also included golden ivory. Ivory, and by the end of the 19th century, because of the slave trade, five times as many Africans, over 11 million, would arrive in the Americans, Americas than Europeans. That, of course, is both, you know, North, South, and Central America and the Caribbean. That's, yes. that's that whole area. And, uh, oh, also I need to uh, point out that this timeline comes from uh, the website ushistory.org. Okay. Very and good. So uh, someone was nice enough to several years ago, know that I was going to need this timeline and made it for me. No, look at was, that. I, I thought it was very lovely. It does. It sounds lovely already. <laughs> so uh, that's sort of uh, a good starting point. And then in 1503, Spanish and Portuguese started bringing African slaves to the uh, Caribbean and Central America to replace the Native Americans in the gold mines. And so that sort of kicked it off. And then, sorry, in 1610, Henry Hudson, by the way, you guys know there's like a chain of pubs named after that guy, <laughs> or at least I'm assuming that it's named after him. His ship, the Half Moon, arrived in the New World, most likely carrying African slaves. And the Dutch were a deeply involved in the African slave trade and brought the trade to the American colonies, where the Dutch built their wealth on an Atlantic empire of sugar slaves and ships. In 1619, a Dutch ship brought the first permanent African settlers to Jamestown, Virgin uh, Virginia. 
Mm-hmm. And that's all it says. Uh, it says settlers and not slaves. So I'm not sure it may, if there was actually people that they brought there to live. I don't know. That, mm. That's just sort of what it says. Mm. And then in 1641, Massachusetts becomes the first colony to recognize slavery as a legal institution in the 1641 Body of Liberties. This is sort of interesting for later on in the story. We'll find out because a lot of times people, when they think of American history, only think of slavery in the South. But the North had slavery at the beginning as well, but the North got rid of it faster. The abolitionist movement started there and they got rid of it much faster Mm-hmm. And obviously we know um, what the South, what that took. And in 1651, though, Rhode Island declared that an enslaved person must be freed after 10 years of service, which is sort of, in a way, I guess one could argue that maybe they got that from the Bible, because in the Bible, you could only be a slave if you were uh, Jewish for seven years. So I don't know if that's a principle where that came from. Mm. but. Okay, yes, okay. I mean, I see what you're saying. I don't know. They could have have started with that, but of course, knowing what we know about the history of it, we we know how that's been twisted and Definitely been twisted and perverted because also in the Bible, the only slaves that got released after seven years were Israelites. If you were, you know, if you were from Babylon you did not get released after seven years. So there is that. But I still found that to be sort of a, a interesting thing. Yeah, it is. At least that was a start <laughs> of getting rid of it. Mm, um, yes. You know, obviously not perfect, but at this point it is what it is. <laughs> and in 1663, a Virginia court decided that a child born to an enslaved mother was also a slave. And here's sort of then where uh, the first notable person by name is sort of mentioned. In 1671, a man named George Fox, who is generally called the founder of the Religious Society of Friends, they were Quakers, influences agitation among Quakers against slaveholding by society members when he speaks against slavery on his visit to North America. In 1672, the King of England chartered the Royal African Company, encouraging the expansion of the British slave trade. And of course, in 1672, we were still part of Britain, so that Mm -hmm. affected us. Mm -hmm. And then in 1676, a man named Nathaniel Bacon appealed to enslaved blacks to join his cause because he had what is called Bacon's Rebellion. And then that same year, slavery is prohibited in West New Jersey, which was a uh, Quaker settlement that is now uh, South New Jersey. Mm -hmm. And then um, the first sort of notable protest that's mentioned was in 1688 in Germantown, which is now Philadelphia. Quakers and Mennonites protested against slavery. Can I just say something that's so incredibly not serious, but I've always found it Interesting. Yeah. I don't know if it's just the way certain words sound to me, uh-huh. but I've always been fascinated with the word Mennonite. You know what? I have to because the ending in "ite" kind of sounds like how all of the people ended in the Bible, you know, in the Old Testament. Yes. Not to mention the active verb smite. So yes. Yeah. yeah. All of that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I I've always found Mennonite to be sort of a 
interesting word as well. <laughs> it took me a minute to to learn how to pronounce it correctly because it looks like it wants to sound like something else. Right. But once you get used to saying, because I think we have a couple of Mennonite churches here in our area. And I'll see, you know, how you see the signs on the side of the road directing you to right, churches right. and yeah, house yeah, of yeah. worship. I was like, oh, Mennonite. And I'll, I'll be driving by it. I'll just say it to myself in the car for no apparent reason at all. So, well, well I'm about to top you because I just had a horrible thought because the TV's on in the background with no sound. And J.J. Walker was just on that commercial for Social Security benefits. Don't you do it. Don't you do it. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing it. Mennonite! <laughs> Okay, good night, folks. Thanks for tuning in. <laughs> Sorry, folks. Couldn't help it. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Uh, any <sighs> any listeners younger than 30? Uh, Google J.J. Walker. <laughs> yeah, do that. And then it was big go, in the late 70s. Go ahead and binge watch Good Times. Go ahead. There you go, yeah. <laughs> Come back and let us know what you think. Whew, okay. Straight back to the down. topic. Back to the seriousness <laughs> of the topic. Yes. Uh, and then I'm going to, I'm going to jump forward just a little bit because there's not necessarily a, a whole lot going on. There was, I'm just not going to even read the name of this book just because it, I just, it's bad and I don't want to read it. <laughs> Does it oh, it has bad words. Well, no, I just, the book is called An Extortion and Caution to Friends Concerning the Buying or Keeping of Negroes. Oh, well, that sounds like a handy little guide. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> right? I'm surprised that with uh, certain state legislatures, it hasn't come back in print. Oh, they're working on it. Uh, right? <laughs> they're just going to call it something else entirely, but they're working on it. Yeah. Heaven forbid. Anyway. All right. Yes. So moving on <laughs> to 1730, English trades aggressively in North America uh, with slaves in the cities of New York, Boston, and Charleston, which, of course, once again, New York and Boston are in the north. And generally speaking, later on, we consider that as, you know, non-slave states. And in 1750, this is also sort of different if you think about it. 1750, Georgia is the last of the British North American colonies to legalize slavery. Hmm. Which, you know, mm. considering what happens in roughly 112 years, <laughs> or 111 years, is uh, quite a change. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. So, in 1754, this is a man whose name I'm going to highlight, or a man I'm going to highlight a little later on. Um, a man named John Woolman addressed his fellow Quakers, and I guess it was, it was about the, the early book of Keeping of Negroes, I guess there was a sequel to it. Um, but in his case, it was basically freeing them. And he had great influence with the Society of Friends to recognize that slavery was evil. And he got them in 1758 to start a committee to get slaveholding people in Philadelphia to free their slaves. And he uh, was presented in London in 1772 a certificate from philadelphia for helping to do the if i'm reading this correctly it's worded sort of oddly and then so we move on 1775 the pennsylvania society for promoting the abolition of slavery 
became the world's first anti-slavery society and the first Quaker anti-slavery society. And Benjamin Franklin was the honorary president in 1787. And then Thomas Paine was one of the people that spoke there a lot. And then um, also another one of the founding fathers who should be more well-known than he was, was a man named Benjamin Rush. He was also a signer of the Declaration of Independence. And then in 1780, the Gradual Emancipation Act passed in Pennsylvania. So that was still sort of on the timeline of everything pretty early. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah. And then uh, 1787, uh, parts of Virginia, which became other states, uh, banned slavery. And, of course, the same thing now in England is happening because this is about the time where William Wilberforce uh, is starting his push in England to get it abolished. Mm -hmm. And then in Philadelphia that same year, the there was the Free African Society of Philadelphia, and it was the first independent black organization to try to end slavery. So that's a pretty important date and a pretty important thing with probably a bunch of pretty important people. And yes. then Rhode Island outlawed the slave trade in that same year, 1787. Mm. And then in 1788, Pennsylvania amends its laws to forbid the forceful, forceful removal of blacks from the state. So slave hunters couldn't come in and just kidnap black people and take them south to make them slaves again. Or slaves if they were never slaves. Which mm. is, I think, a pretty important law in that time and a pretty forward-thinking law. You're right, but that makes me think of... That story, and I'm curious as to when that took place. But in 1793, the U.S. Congress enacted the first fugitive slave law, returning, requiring the return of fugitives. And so, um, hoping to build sympathy for their citizenship rights, Philadelphia Free Blacks rallied to minister to the sick and maintain that they uh, could not be taken back but um, it doesn't say anymore in terms of that and then mm. from that point on there were just a lot of various societies that were formed in the north and it slowly started getting um, outlawed in northern states in 1803 benjamin rush was elected the president of the pennsylvania Ab uh, abolition society so in 1804 i'm uh, mentioning this just because we have did a full episode on this, and that would be the final defeat of the French in St. Domingue, which resulted in the founding of Haiti as an independent black nation and an inspiration to blacks in America, and that uh, Haitian independence was celebrated throughout northern free black communities. Mm -hmm. And uh, there obviously is still more to the timeline that goes all the way up to the Civil War, but honestly, a lot of the stuff from that point is things that are easily found, you know, studying American, early American history and all of that. And I, mm -hmm. I don't want to continue um, sort of not that it's not important. That's not what I'm saying. I just want to move on to some of this other less known information. Please do. Yes. So in Europe, the first significant efforts to ban human trafficking and abolish forced labor i.e. slavery, emerged in the 18th century. And, um, hang on here. 
And at that during that time, new in many New England states, uh, many Americans started to view slavery as a shameful legacy with no place in modern society. And the movement really started, as we discussed, started to emerge in places like New York and Massachusetts. And then in 1833, the same year that Britain outlawed slavery, the American Anti-Slavery Society was established. And it came under the leadership of William Lloyd Garrison, who was a Boston journalist and social reformer. Garrison was the abolitionist's most dedicated campaigner. Campaigner, sorry. But abolitionists were a divided group. There were several sort of factions, I guess. There were people like Garrison who called for an immediate end to slavery. But then there were others that sort of thought that it should be phased out gradually. And then there was the more extreme side, like you mentioned, of John Brown, who believed that an armed rebellion of the slave people or of enslaved people in the South was the quickest route to end human bondage in the U.S. Yes. So give me one second. I should I should add that I did a bit of research on John Brown only because I started watching the excellent Showtime series, The Good Lord Bird, mm -hmm. starring Ethan Hawke as John right. Brown. Uh, I should just say, relatedly, that Ethan Hawke has had a heck of a res uh, res uh, comeback. Yeah, yeah, he certainly has. But he he does such a job playing this guy, and he plays John Brown like a religious fanatic. Um, and depending on what bit of history you look at, either John Brown was like either really conscientious and dedicated abolitionist, or he was a madman, or mm -hmm. somewhere in the middle. In the show, they depict him. Or all of the above. <laughs> or all of the above. They in the, in the show, they depict him with his gang of, uh, I think there was a name for him. I can't remember what the name was. It was just like a ragtag put together gang of men that would go around and forcefully try to get people to change their mind about things. He would leave them on two and three hour prayers. That is in itself impressive. When I tell you he would pray about any and everything, and and several of his sons were part of this gang as well, apparently. So when I tell you that this man had the courage of his convictions, I am putting it mildly. He had he definitely <laughs> believed what in his convictions wholeheartedly. Yes, he did. But another little piece of pop culture for you. If you're interested in a good show, check that one out. So there we go. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, it sounds interesting. And now I'm going to go and see if I have that to watch. Yes. So this guy is sort of an interesting dude. And he was a huge abolitionist. And his name was Benjamin Lay. And I am reading this from history.com. So these are these are not my words, but I am reading, and this is this man is quite an interesting man. So here goes. Even though he stood just four foot seven inches tall and had a hunched back, Benjamin Lay loomed large among the eighteenth century abolitionists. The Quaker dwarf first developed a hatred of slavery in the seventeen twenties while working as a merchant alongside sugar plantations in Barbados. Upon moving to Philadelphia a few years later, he launched a crusade to convince his fellow Quakers that the peculiar institution was incompatible with their faith. He interrupted Quaker gatherings to lecture on 
um, abolitionism, refused to eat food or wear clothing that was made by slave labor and published a 278-page screed titled All Slave Keepers That Keep the Innocent in Bondage Apostates. Which, <clears throat> you know, in the Christian world, that's not good to be an apostate. No. And um, that that is a bold book for the time. Yes, and it was. Even the not eating food or wearing clothes. Those were bold stances. Yeah. Uh, and this next, this next uh, paragraph is interesting, though. Lay was best known for staging bizarre pieces of anti-slavery theater. For one stunt, he stood outside with one bare foot in the snow to show the suffering of slaves who go all winter half-clad. For another, he briefly kidnapped a slaveholding Quaker's child to illustrate the injustice of separating Africans from their families. Uh, as the kids say nowadays, he wanted all the smoke. That's what that's what his deal was. <laughs> he was a bold man. And then I'll uh, give it to him. <laughs> oh, well, here we go. This is even better. This is even more theatrical. This man totally would have been working on Broadway if he was alive today. In 1738, Lay took to the floor at an annual Quaker meeting, drew a sword, and stabbed a hollowed-out Bible filled with red-colored juice, spraying some of it on the crowd. And he yelled, Thus shall God shed the blood of those who have enslaved their fellow creatures, he proclaimed. And his radicalism made him an outcast for much of his life, but he eventually achieved a small success in 1758 when Quakers voted to exclude slaveholders from their business meetings. And upon hearing the news, the elderly dwarf supposedly rose from his chair and said, I can now die in peace. Well... I mean, how else could he go? He spent all that time. <laughs> he yeah. Spent a, he spent all that time causing all sorts of drama. Yeah, you can take a break now. It's good. It's good. We're cool. We're cool. <laughs> that, is, that is just impressive that he was that passionate about ending slavery. I said, I, and I don't mean to minimize it at all. That's just considering what abolitionists, even white abolitionists, were up against back then. Yeah, yeah, I, I'll give it to him. That's that, that's for sure. That's, he had to get he had to get people's attention some kind of way. Yeah, I and he was that, a Quaker, I, so he wasn't drinking. You know, there was no hold my beer with his stunts. He was no, doing that one hundred percent sober. Yes, <laughs> yes, he knew. He knew. Yeah, he got he got he got people's attention. That's for sure. He definitely did. And then another fella was a man named Anthony. I'm probably pronouncing this wrong. It's B-E-N-E-Z-E-T. So I don't know if it's Benezet or Benezet. I'm not sure how it would be pronounced. And they don't mm. have something in parentheses to let me know. Mm -hmm. And he was one of the people that was laying the foundations to end the transatlantic slave movement. Mm -hmm. And he took up the cause in 1754 when he joined fellow activist John Woolman in writing a text titled The Epistle of Caution and Advice Concerning the Buying and Keeping of Slaves. So these, these book titles though. <laughs> I know. Yeah, of course we're obviously looking at it from a 2022 lens. True. True, but it it's basically the book title is basically a summary of the book. It's not yeah. it's not there to catch your attention and make you want to read it. It's telling you what it's going to talk about. 
Yes, yes, definitely for sure. And um, he continued to write various tracks, sort of like the Federal Papers type of a thing, mm-hmm. for the next 25 years uh, to end slavery. And he used like enlightenment philosophy and religious doctrine and even economics to make a case for emancipation. And he was also, uh, which is probably way ahead of his time, he taught African children in his school as well. He he did not separate blacks and whites, and he wanted everyone to have the same education. And he was one of the people that was, at the time, you know, one of the first people to say, hey, you know, black people are as smart as white people. <laughs> I mean, duh, but you know what I mean. That's, that's yes. that time. Yes. <laughs> and his writings, though, were distributed not only in the U.S., but also in Europe. And he corresponded with Benjamin Franklin and the Methodist founder, John Wesley. And then in 1775, he helped found the Society for the Relief of Free Negroes Unlawfully Held in Bondage. That is quite a, once again. Names and titles. titles you know what? Names. <laughs> Sometimes if you think about it, the full name of the NAACP is a bit wordy. But even that is really not compared to this. <laughs> True. True. Yeah, that's that's a lot. That's, that's a mouthful. Yeah, and then um, this next uh, this next part of it, you you may have heard of her. Um, her name is her original name was Elizabeth Bett B E T T, but she changed her name later on to Freeman, and I will explain why. In 1781, as the American Revolution was raging, Massachusetts. A Massachusetts slave named Bet approached an abolitionist lawyer named Theodore Sedgwick and asked him to help her sue for her freedom. She had endured, I like how this is worded, mistreatment at the hands of her master's wife, mm. including a blow from a hot kitchen shovel that left her with a burn on her arm. I'm, yeah, that's mistreatment. <laughs> sure, that's what we'll call it. That's yeah. what we'll call it. And she was determined to never return to that house again. And to back up her case for emancipation, she cited a surprisingly a surprising new source, Massachusetts' newly inked constitution, which included a passage stating that all of the state's residents were born free and equal. So Sedgwick took the case and later argued in county court that Massachusetts' constitution nullified any previous law supporting slavery. And in a landmark decision, the jury agreed with him and awarded Bet her freedom, as well as 30 shillings in damages. It was one of the first times that a slave successfully won emancipation in court, and along with other another case involving a man named, please forgive me, Quok, Q-U-O-K, Walker? Um, mm. I, once again, there's nothing on there to how to pronounce that, and I don't like butchering someone's name, <laughs> so please forgive me. Uh, But it helped to set a precedent that saw Massachusetts abolish slavery in 1783. And um, she went on to work as a paid domestic servant in Sedgwick's home. And then she changed her last name to reflect her new status as a free citizen to Freeman. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once again, that's a pretty, pretty important, you know, step that got us to where we, you know, that helped found this movement. And then... Next is Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was the Surgeon General of the Continental Army. And as we discussed in the 1770s, he started to fight for abolition when he met uh, Anthony 
Benezet. And then he fought, and when the American uh, Revolution ended, he was one of the many patriots who believed uh, that the New Republic, the principles of the New Republic left no room for slavery. It would be useless for us to denounce the servitude to which the Parliament of Great Britain wishes to reduce us. While we continue to keep our fellow creatures in slavery just because their color is different. That is, that last sentence is strangely pretty modern sounding. <laughs> you know, they're. And then he joined the Pennsylvania Abolition Society in the 1780s. And then, like I said, he uh, eventually became the president. He raised money for African churches or African American churches and enlisted the help of. Um, he even helped train uh, black nurses to help in the 1793 yellow fever epidemic, hmm. which is cool. But yeah, no, it's amazing how many people even then were so forward thinking, even if, you know, obviously now we cringe at the, you know, the wording of everything. But it's still amazing how many people even then were willing to fight the way they fought to to end something that they knew was quite wrong. Yes. But what gets me is that it took so freaking long. I mean, looking back right. at it, we're talking about a hundred years. Oh, From, yeah. oh yeah. No, I yeah, agree with 100 you on plus. that. Like that's a mind blower to have, you know, the first murmurings come up in the mid 1700s and still we're talking about another century Yeah, before it was, it went as far as it did. And like you said, the links, to which it had to go to put a stop to it altogether. Yeah, it's it, it just shows you the the size of the um, mountain that they had to climb. All right, so John Woolman was born October 19th, 1720, and he died October 7th, 1772. He was an American merchant, tailor, journalist, Quaker preacher, early abolitionist in the colonial area. And he was based near Philadelphia, which, as we mentioned earlier, he was really big and, and leader in the abolition of slavery and the slave trade and also cruelty to animals. So once again, he was ahead of his time there, too. Mm. And just economic uh, injustices and impression. And he was also against people being conscripted into the military. Well, go figure. Yeah, he's this, this damn liberal. <laughs> dirty hippies they had dirty hippies in the 1700s <laughs> yeah yeah and he published numerous essays against slavery and he had kept a journal throughout his life and it was published after he died and it's titled the journal of john woolman and uh included uh i guess you can still get it it's included in harvard classics oh. it's considered a prominent work but it also has stuff of poets and friends and um, all sorts of stuff. And he was, he published uh, something called, once again, this is another, you know, he was trying to, it's the, some consideration on the keeping of Negroes, but his was to get rid of slavery. And he tried to get people to do that. That's part of the book. And that you should treat, if you do have them, you need to treat them well and nice, which once again, it's his time, <laughs> you know. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> and when he, if he was traveling and he accepted hospitality, which meant staying with somebody who owed slaves, he would insist on paying the slaves for the work that they did while helping him and attending him and serving him. 
and he would not be served with silver cups, plates, or utensils because he felt that if the slaves weren't able to use such materials and that they were forced to dig up materials for the rich, that he was not going to eat on them. <laughs> and he generally <laughs> tried to work to make, if he couldn't free slaves, to make their life at least better as a slave. And, you know, obviously we're looking at it from the lens of time. And so for, for that time, that was a pretty forward-thinking, you know, thought process. <laughs> and... um but just the, the way that he fought and obviously inspired other people, which, of course, then spread and led to, you know, the North abolishing slavery. And then, mm -hmm. of course, that led to the Civil War. And so, court is choking me here. <laughs> and so, um, it's just sort of interesting how many people for their time, even though they couldn't necessarily do enough to end it sooner. Yeah. But they definitely got the ball rolling. And who knows, had people like them not existed in their time, how much deeper and worse maybe the shadow of slavery would be in the U.S. Oh, it, it probably would have spread west. Yeah. Eventually. And it that's, was, that's for sure. Yeah. And obviously there are a bunch more people and everything that, that I'm not even highlighting and stuff like that. And a lot more I'm sure can be found on these various societies on what they did to try to uh, end slavery. Mm -hmm. But it was important. It led to people in the North ending slavery in the North and, you know, fighting to get it ended. And I know that clearly that didn't happen in the constitution. I would imagine since a lot of people that were abolitionists from the North when the Constitution was being written probably hated that because like the guy that was the teacher, he taught everybody. And so I don't even say this to try to put any logic to it, but it it was most of it was an economic thing. Yeah. You know, the Southerners being absolutely convinced that they needed slaves. Otherwise, their economy would collapse. It would exactly, and you know, not notwithstanding the fact that you know that they could have got their asses out there and done that work, but who are we to judge? I mean, no, you know. no, I, I agree. <laughs> and you gotta, you gotta break some eggs and make omelet or some such thing. Yeah, yeah, ish. And, um, you know, once again, obviously there. are you know, flaws in America and there were flaws in the constitution and thank goodness they had an amendment process to try and fix flaws when in the future. <laughs> yeah. Some, some ways, sometime later. True. And it, but... it is a shame that it took that long, but it, you know, it took that long in England too. Yes. What was it? It took William Wilberforce 40 years of fighting for ending the slave trade over there in England. Yep. And there were people that had just as long of a battle here. And I'm sure mm. a lot of them, because apparently, like that lay dude, that guy probably, you know, was like, I finally won this battle, you know, this big part. And it was just one little tiny part <laughs> of the whole. I mean, all you need sometimes is one crack to start shattering the whole thing. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. of course, of course, he didn't necessarily know how significant his role would play. I knew he, I, I'm assuming he probably knew there was something to it. Obviously, he wouldn't have kept going, but there's no way he would have known how big of a piece of that, that part of history he would end up becoming. 
Not not why he was in it, obviously. So the great thing is they should make a Broadway musical about that lay guy because he was apparently dramatic enough normally (laughs) just in his life. I mean, if they did if they did Hamilton, why not? Yeah. Why not? (laughs) There will be people like, there's no way that he stabbed a Bible with a sword. (laughs) Right? Yes, he did. Uh huh. Uh huh. (laughs) But you know, that to me that was sort of a an interesting way to make a point to stand with one foot in the snow, hmm. you know, to prove a point that there are people that aren't dressed properly for this and y'all are the reason why. When I think about it and maybe I've missed it cause they might've been like low key productions. But when I think about it, I don't know how often that I've seen either movies or TV series that focus focused on abolitionists or the abolitionist movement. They've been like subplots. In other shows yeah. I've seen or side plots, but not something that focused solely on significant until, you know, the show I mentioned earlier. But before then, I don't know that there has been something that focused solely on a prominent abolitionist, not outside of the context of some kind of slave story. Right. Yeah. I, Other than the movie about William Wilberforce, I think you are correct in that. I can't think of any outside of that one either. There was um, a show that was on, I think it was WGN. Yeah, it was WGN um, called Underground. Mm-hmm. Um, it was only off the of two seasons. It was a really good show. And they had um, the story of, and it was a fictional guy. I guess they must have based his character on like a conglomerate of actual abolitionists at the time. But there was a, a B plot surrounding an abolitionist and his family and all the dangers that he encountered in being who he was and in uh and preaching what he preached. And even I think he I think they did live in were they in Philly? That would surprise me because based on what we've learned, that was apparently the the hot spot for the movement. It might have been Philly or Boston, one of the two. It had to be one of those places. But um that may be the that may be the first time the first time I remember seeing any focus on white abolitionists in particular, because they faced as much, if not more, danger from, you know, people who still wanted to support the institution. Yeah. Because they were considered traitors. Yeah. Basically. Yeah, definitely. It's, I would have to wonder, obviously you can't go back in time and, you know, bring someone forward in time. There's no TARDIS or anything like that. And I would have to say, take, Lay or, you know, John Woolman and some of these other guys we highlighted, um, they would probably both be incredibly happy that there's no slavery and upset at we haven't gone far enough to end sort of racial injustice. That's inequality. Um, that part. That, that They might get a level of satisfaction knowing that direct slavery is no longer a thing. But then knowing all the things, all the, you know, the legacy of slavery and all the things that continue to be handed down in one form or another since then. Yeah, they, they probably chomping at the bit trying to get at that. They would probably think, yes, you ended slavery, but you didn't go far enough. Yeah. Yeah. You. Oh, but you, you ended slavery, but then you have oh antebellum. Inter, oh, and then you have the Jim Crow era. Oh, and then you. Ha- oh, oh, oh. 
oh, well, what the, f-? you know, just like, what do we do all this for anyway? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, we fought to end slavery to make everyone equal, I think would be their argument. Not we fought to end slavery and then do everything you can to keep people down. Yeah, correct. Yeah, do that. Just keep and, just keep doing what you're doing, just different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, and obviously, we, of course, have the advantage of looking back in time. Mm-hmm. And, um, but still, it's it's just so interesting that the, the mountain they had to climb mm-hmm. to make change, and there had to have been a part of them that knew that this was going to be a slow-moving thing. <laughs> And I, I bet, and I think you mentioned it earlier. Um, what was the guy's name with the theatrics? That was Lay. So while Mr. Lay was up there making real dramatic points, and clearly, probably not everybody had his back, mostly because polite society just didn't do things like that, regardless of what you were talking about. But I think even then, you had those people that today we would call moderates. That were like, okay, we get your point. We agree with you. It's a bad thing, but you don't have to do all of this. Let's right. just see what happens. Yeah, yeah. And I think the the garrison guy that I mentioned that wanted to end slavery immediately, obviously he was not John Brown extreme. Yes. <laughs> and um, I think his, obviously, I think his viewpoint was probably the correct one. Because if you have a rebellion and you're killing people, then that's a, you know, a whole other issue of horrors mm-hmm. <laughs> but yes. um, but at the same time i guess i guess i understand just looking you know the time you were in if somebody thought the best way to do it was the generation that is a slave now they will be but their children will not be you know i could see why people would have that viewpoint as well i i don't agree with it clearly but i could see where it based in the time that that took place where that would be a logical thought right. process. We don't want to upset right. too many people. Yeah, we don't agree with the institution, but then again, we don't want to alienate a whole bunch of people. We don't have to do it like this. Just right. be cool. And just like you said, again, looking looking back on it, there was really no time to be cool, but they're talking about a whole lot of opposing forces. Yeah that didn't like what abolitionists had to say at the time. So that was, yeah, that was slow going. No doubt about it. Yeah. Yeah. You almost have to look at the abolitionist movement, maybe similar to, you know, fighting for, but even this, even this is still different. Um, fighting for, you know, equality with LGBTQ in a sense, not as extreme because if you are, you know, if you're, if you're black and you go into a convenience store, you can't hide the fact that you're black. If you're a white LGBTQ person, you can go into a store. Nobody's going to know unless you're, you know, are wearing a giant shirt that says, hey, I'm gay. But, you know, but so that is a big, big difference between the two. But yes. maybe in the last sort of modern times, other than obviously still fighting for the, the equality that you deserve. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's sort of a similar type of a situation. I agree. I agree. And I, I used to think that that particular mindset that was the exact mindset I had years ago. And then I'm not sure if it was just, I was talking myself out of it in, and, and I felt like I was minimizing 
what the LGBTQ community was going through when I said things like that. But I've since come back around to it. Just like you said, some things are apparent, some are not. But the the parallels and the fight for equality in in you know rightful places in society those those are the exact same, really. Mm-hmm. So yes, but it is a matter of something one thing being more apparent than others. Which it's like I said, I I said at one point I had kind of talked myself out of that viewpoint because it sounded it sounded weird in my ears and I had to rethink it. And I'm like, yeah. no. No, it's not. It's not a bad thing to be able to make that distinction, but you can't make right. the distinction between is the struggle. The struggle is is the same regardless. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, and it's not, obviously, it doesn't minimize either. Something can be similar mm-hmm. and different with a similar endpoint. Right. And, you know, but, yeah, it's, I'm just glad that there were people that, had those convictions back then I mean to, in, to fight because you know that that had to have been difficult and and when you think about any movement that has to do with putting I'll say marginalized groups on equal footing any type of that movement has to start with somebody screaming somewhere they have to make somebody pay attention for to get to get a foothold in anything Somebody's got to stab a Bible and have fake blood squirt on the crowd. I did this for you guys. So, <laughs> and you know, it, <laughs> it sounds strange to think that Mr. Lay from the 1700s is really, had he not existed, you know, in sort of the path of all of those people, those people are, you know, they built the foundations that allowed for, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. I mean, you're right. It, I mean, I hate, I remember they had like a proposal. I can't remember what network. It might've been the same people that did the show Underground or maybe it was the guys who did, it was the guys who did Game of Thrones. They had a proposal out at some point that they wanted to make a series. Yes. What would happen if the South had won the Civil War? Man, they got dragged so bad. They did, they did, yeah. It's actually, there's actually a couple of, there's, there's a type of book called like historical fiction mm-hmm. where they take something and it's a, what would have happened if this would have been turned right instead of left? So to speak. Right. Right. And, like when you, when, like you say, if you think about it, any one of those notable figures in the abolitionist movement wasn't there, or if not enough people had been able to push the issue so that it got to the ears of the president, you know, Mm, or yeah. he, you know, he had already been hearing about before he was president, but what if he had never made it to Lincoln's people? What if he had never had the idea to have right to emancipation proclamation? What if the country had never had right. to go to war? You know what I'm saying? Like anyone, yeah. any one thing had been slightly different. We've been, we would have been looking at a different kind of America, but then we wouldn't know the difference. Well, yeah, we obviously wouldn't, <laughs> you know, I'm sure that if somebody could, talk to Martin Luther King Jr. and say, hey, if you, if they would have got rid of slavery in 1770 and you did not have to, and you could have just been a preacher at Ebenezer and not have to fight for equality, would you have been cool with that? He probably would have been like, yes, I would. (laughs) What does cool mean? (laughs) Here's 
well, go back, go back a little further. Would he even even been allowed to be a preacher? So think about that. I, yeah, I mean, obviously, like there's yeah. there, there's a whole bunch of things that may not have happened. So yeah, it's whole. It, obviously, you know, if fans would have should have. True, but I'm just glad that there were people that that were willing to fight at a time when the fight would have been. It's difficult now. I mean, people Anytime. that fight for equality now are vilified. Oh, you know, yeah. Oh, the worst people alive are Black Lives Matter. Well, maybe Antifa's a little worse. But if you're in both of them, then you are you are just, I mean, oh, my God, Stalin has nothing on you. It's hilarious <laughs> to me how many people misinterpret what Black Lives Matter is about. They I think know. It's, it's like it's in the, the title. It's it, They think it's strictly <laughs> about police brutality against black people new their primary focus was excessive police brutality against anyone especially blacks and people of color that was the emphasis but they have concerns about police brutality across the board but people don't know that people don't want to take the time to actually research that and find out that that's that's their main focus there's things that they you know laser in on but yes Duh. Yeah. Why but it, why does a, a white and a black man, same exact age, born same day, same minute on the same day, right? Mm-hmm. Both of them got picked up with a pound of cocaine, we'll just say, right? They get convicted mm-hmm. of it, sentencing comes around. The black guy's gonna get two to eight years more on his sentence than the white guy ninety five percent of the time. Yep. Same exact they could have even had the exact same rap sheet. Yep. And if one of them's Steve Johnson and the other one is, I don't know, Herschel Walker. I just say that because he's goofy. But Stop. That name is like a curse now. Don't say that <laughs> <I> no more. <laughs> you know, just, I don't know. Just Steve Johnson, the black Steve Johnson versus white Steve Johnson, right? But I'm just saying that. White Steve, black Steve. <sighs> black Steve is going to get a, a harsher sentence than white Steve. Accurate. Absolutely accurate. And that's part of Black Lives Matter as well, because it's not just keeping black people from, you know, being killed and murdered. Yes. yes. You also want to have equality in the courts. That's Mm -hmm, also mm -hmm. where Black Lives Matter and equality in in... buying houses and Mm -hmm. and just various stuff. And so, yeah, I have to share this this little tidbit because, you know, you mentioned the founding fathers. Um. I don't know if it was just serendipity or what, but across my Facebook feed some days ago, I get an ad for one of my favorite skit shows ever, Key and Peele. And it was a skit where Jordan Peele is dressed up appropriately and he's at the signing of Constitution. And they're getting ready to sign off on the Bill of Rights, which, as you know, are the first 10 amendments. Yes. And we all know what the second amendment is. So they're showing, you know, they're showing the guys getting ready to sign off on it. And all of a sudden, Peel's character walks in. He's dressed in the times with a little powder wig and all this. He said, I can't let you sign it. What? I can't let you sign it. Do you know what's going to happen if you sign it? There'll be mass shootings all the time and yada, yada, yada. No, no, you can't sign it. You can't make it legal. And all the the old white men are looking at him like, well, how do you know this? How do I know this? Because I'm from the future. And then from underneath his coat, 
he pulls out in each hand two semi-automatics and starts mowing down all the founding fathers. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> and it's like half of them jump for cover, half of them hit the floor, riddled with bullet holes. And the guys that tip cover behind the table pop up and they look at them. And all of a sudden they're like, no, no, we can't. We can't have that as an amendment. So they hastily scribble it out. And then all of a sudden, as Jordan Peele's character is standing there, the semi-automatic guns disappear from his hands. <laughs> and he looks down like, I did it. He's smiling. <laughs> and then that's like, wait a minute. I know what we can say. And all of a sudden they write something back in, in the spot that they just erased the Second Amendment out of. And all of a sudden you see guns reappear in his hands, but now they're like, terminator style weapons with laser sights <laughs> <Right>. even worse <laughs> even worse and all of a sudden jordan peele's getter's like oh god <laughs> no oh goodness <laughs> yeah that that just tickled I, me i'm like look at this this is a tiny little skit for me to see today i <laughs> i still say that the the teacher from the inner city at the white school is one of the greatest comedy skits in the history of humanity. Mr. O'Shaughnessy. <laughs> <laughs> Woo. Oh, Jaquella. Goodness. Do you mean Jacqueline? <laughs> Don't bad talk me. <laughs> I taught in the inner city for 20 years. There's nothing you can do that won't, that I have not seen. <laughs> uh, like, I just, even to this day, when I watch those skits, I am, I just, I giggle. I just, I don't know how them two men did what they did and not just fall out dying all day, all the time. I know. Um, no. Key is like, uh, there's that Sam Jones show that's recorded in black and white where he talks to actors and musicians and it's straightforward. And he had uh, key on and he was basically talking. He's like this, that skit only works because of stereotypes. Correct. He was like, if we mm -hmm. did not have stereotypes about the inner city, he's like, that skit does not work. It's not funny. Mm -mm. He's like, but because of the stereotype, he's like, that. that's why that skit works. Both of them. Because, you know, there's the sequel skit to it as well. There's actually three. <laughs> there's three of them. I think, I, think with the, I think the third one was where it was picture day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And he also said that that's why the East-West game oh. skits work as well. <laughs> Minnesota State. <laughs> and then it ends with Bill Smith. Brigham Young. <laughs> Brigham Young. Yeah. Bill Smith, Brigham Young. <laughs> the only white guy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like the first time me and my, because my daughter's a fan too. And the first time me and her saw that skit, we were crying. We couldn't catch our breath. We were laughing so hard. It, like every every name one after the other was more ridiculous than the last one. Just on and on and on. And then they got to Joseph. And we were like, no, hit the ground. Yeah. Look. And there's the sequel one to that too, where the one dude's in the NFL, and I can't think of the name of the guy that it is in the NFL. Yes. It was one of the funnier names, but yeah. Kim Pill were definitely genius. And oh, yeah. while I was sad when they ended their show, I think they did it at the right time. They did. Because they, they ended it while they were on top and at the top of their game yeah, for they that did. show. So they anyway. did. Like they're so they're so memeable. Honestly. I I just I love it. I love it. Yeah. Whew. 
Well, I think we should probably go ahead and wrap this bad mamba jamba up. Indeed. Indeed. Yes. So, you know, glad we did the show. It was interesting. And definitely glad we talked about it. I I felt I learned some about some pretty interesting characters. I do too. I agree. Most uh, definitely. I, I clearly think that Mr. Mm-hmm. Lay would be an incredible person now and i have a feeling that he would be an activist for some cause today most definitely he would probably out bernie sanders bernie sanders in terms of you know shoutiness yeah i would give him that i would give him that i not to say that there are i mean obviously there are still people on the ground doing good work but i think the art of, of the art of disruption to that degree is a lost art to me yeah. To me. Well, sometimes but. when you have somebody who sort of disrupts things and you're like, man, that guy's a groundbreaker, you know, pioneer, a groundbreaker. Someone from, say, the last 40 years. Well, no, there were dudes 250 years ago that were doing the exact same crap. We just sure. don't know about them. Yep. And we need to know about people like that because it definitely has helped maybe get us from being even worse than it could have been had they not fought the fight they fought. And not just that, but to me, it it adds that much more of a richer texture to the history of this country. For all its faults, fundamental and otherwise, there's a lot of things going on in this country that just don't get talked about enough. They don't get the they don't get the attention they deserve. Yeah. So this 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 right here is one of them. So I enjoyed this. I enjoyed this very much. Yeah. So definitely interesting. And myself. Jaqueline, Aaron, <laughs> Mr. O'Hena Haggisey. <laughs> I'm trying to think of what was the other. There's another kid's name that made that had me giggling. I'll probably go watch that skit sometime soon as well. I have I, to yeah, now. I, I will be watching it here in a few minutes. I'm sure. <laughs> and Kenyatta as well. You know, yes. we're, we're all going to sign off. Yes. And for Mr. Lay, the most dramatic abolitionist that ever lived. They, he needs a Broadway musical. Or to quote him, I'm either quoting him or Khan, and I don't mean Genghis Khan. I stab at thee from the heart of hell. There you go. <laughs> oh, yeah. Khan, Star Trek Khan. That's the yeah. one I meant. Noonian. Yes. Rest in peace, yep. Ricardo Maltabon. Yep. Yep. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, listening friends, listening audience, we'll uh, we'll, we'll catch you on the next one. I'll feed it in. <laughs> you see, we got the correction correct. Bye. Yay. <laughs> As always, thank you for listening to our podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review, hit that like button, and subscribe on your preferred podcast platform. Your feedback is valuable, and we welcome it. If you would like to contact, connect with, or just want to see what we talk about between episodes, you can find us on Facebook under our podcast name, on Instagram at K-A-Y-A-N-D-J-A-Y-S-T-W, our website, podpage.com, slash Kenyatta-Jack-Save-The-World. 
or email at k.j.savetheworld at gmail.com. If you would like to learn about and contribute to our chosen charities, you can do so at Service Dog Project at servicedogproject.org and Black Women's Health Initiative at bwhi.org. Kenyatta and Jack Save the World is a product of Hyper Focus Podcasts.